Okay, so let's get started. Um, this week is the second week of discussing the Ibn Ezra's approach to being Matzdeg the Avais. Last week, we discussed one aspect of this topic that applies in this week's Sadra, where the Ibn Ezra said that in relation to the the Pasuk that, that says that Yaakov Avinu tells a family after the story with Dina, he says to the family that um, we should get rid of the idols, get rid of the idols that everybody has, you know, accumulated, and they should um, make it no longer something that they're carrying around, um, which, according to Rashi, certainly it's the idols that they had found in Shechem, According to the Ibn Ezra, they're not really idols. They're, um, what, they're, what they were carrying is not something that was literally an idol, can't be. And the Ibn Ezra, last week, we explained, said that the Ibn Ezra said, it's impossible to understand that that Yaakov Avinu was having relationships with his wives who were walking around with idols. This doesn't work. It doesn't. It's not a possibility. And we said that that's an example of the Ibn Ezra being mastic the Avais, just by saying, look, by definition, Yaakov Avinu is a holy person who gets prophetic inspiration from Hakadosh Baruch Hu, there's just no way that his wives are idol worshippers. Obviously, in the case of Agashlam HaMelech, that would seem to be more possible. Um, certainly, at least the Pesukim would seem to indicate that possibility, at least at a simple read of it. Um, but regardless, the Ibn Ezra is not willing to countenance this as a possibility. But I'd like to focus on this week are a few other examples in the Sedra, where you see the Ibn Ezra's approach to being Masik the Avais. The first is in relation to Yaakov Avinu being very scared of confronting Esav. The Pasuk says, that Yaakov was very afraid. He was very scared of the fact that he heard that Esav was coming with his 400 men. Yaakov got very nervous, and he divided up his family and made different camps. Was this okay? Was it okay for Yaakov to be scared? And the reason that this is a fundamental question, if it's okay for Yaakov to be scared, is because you have to remember that Hashem, on his way, on Yaakov's way to Haran, Hashem had promised them, Hashem had promised Yaakov Avinu that I'm going to be with you and I'm going to watch you in all the ways that you go. And I'm going to return you to this land. 
Kiloyazovcha, I won't abandon you. I won't abandon you until I've done to you what I have said I will take care of. That is, at the beginning of Yaakov's 20-year journey, he is told by Hashem that Hashem will be with him, that Hashem will watch him wherever he goes, that Hashem is going to return him to this land, that he won't abandon him. And then later on, after having worked there for many years, Hashem tells him, it's time to go. Shuv el Eretz Abaysecha ul Malatecha. It's time to go back to the land of your fathers. Ve'eyeimach, and I will be with you. In other words, this is not 20 years, this is not at the beginning of the journey. This is at the end of the journey. This is after 20 years of being in Lavan's house. And then, on his way back to the land of Israel, after he runs away from Lavan, and he takes his family with him, so Lavan eventually catches up to them. And when Lavan catches up to them, he repeats to Yaakov what the dream was that he had had the night before. Lavan, like Avimelech, had a prophetic dream where HaKadosh Baruch Hu came to them in the middle of the night and gave them a prophecy. Hashem came to Lavan and he told Lavan that you cannot do anything to Yaakov. Mitoiv Adra. Not good, no bad. No, nothing. You don't do anything to him. So Lavan repeats this to Yaakov. In other words, Yaakov would not have been aware of Lavan's dream. But Lavan tells him, Make sure you don't do anything to Jacob, not good or bad. So that is to say, right before he's on his way entering into Israel, he hears again, secondhand, from Lavan, who presumably has no reason to, to mention this unless it's true, that Hashem is warned his father-in-law slash his, you know, competitor slash his, um, you know, potential enemy, and told him, you better not mess around with Yaakov. So he he is not relying on a promise that he heard 20 years ago. He's relying on a promise that he heard two weeks ago. He's relying on something that Hashem came and told, reiterated to him. And then he heard again, via Lavan, that Hashem is protecting him. And then, of course, on his way into the land of Israel, and he meets up with angels that the Ibn Ezra says nobody else you know, saw, just was visible to him. So, he's meeting up with a band of angels, presumably, that's another indication that Hashem has taken care of him. And yet, he's so scared. Why is he so scared if Hashem has re-promised, reiterated the promises, and has shown him a number of different features of this protection, of this supernal protective gaze of the, of, of, of the one above? telling Lavan to behave, sending him with a perimeter force of angels, what else could Yaakov possibly want? Why would he be so scared? So Rashi explained that Yaakov was scared 
because he had received so much good from Hashem that when you take into account of how he started out his journey and how he returned, it's just so amazing, the growth that he had, that he has nothing but to say other than being overawed by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Pasuk says, the Yaakov says, I've become small by the goodness that you've done for me. I literally traversed the river, the Yardin, to go up to Charon with nothing but a stick in my hand. And now when I divide up my encampment, I've got two massive camps. So as a result, I feel like I've become small, I've become diminished because of how much good you've given me. In fact, as Rashi says, Because Hashem has been so good to me, because Hashem has taken care of me in the way He had promised, my good deeds, my merits that serve to protect me have diminished. Why is that? The Gemara says in Shabbos that a person shouldn't stand in a Mokim Sakana, shouldn't stand in a dangerous place. Why not? Because maybe there'll be no miracle for you. And even if there will be a miracle for you and you'll manage to survive that, that's taken away from your from your zuchuyas. Imagine a person's zuchuyas like being in a bank account. And every time you get something that's undeserved, that's in effect lowering the bank account. You have to pay up for that. And so... Yaakov Avinu, in considering how well his life has gone, from starting out effectively from zero, from scratch, to the successful person that he's become, it seems like he has had such a 180 degrees shift from where he was, that it's beyond him to think that he has anything left in his, as it were, supernal bank account. He's given it all out in order to be able to attain this much success. And therefore, he's not deserving of anything. He can't call on his tremendous repository, his tremendous spiritual wealth, to enable him to defend himself against Esau. But as I mentioned, and the Kliyakar points out, although the Kliyakar says it's eight days, it's not eight days, that Hashem didn't make these promises 20 years ago. He reiterated these promises literally a week or two before. When Hashem had told Yaakov to leave, when Hashem had told Lavan to hold back from doing anything negative to Yaakov, when he saw the angels surrounding him, Hashem had given him every indication that he's going to protect him. So if Hashem has given him every indication that he's going to protect him, then why is it that Yaakov Avinu was so scared? This question bothers many, many of the Mepharshim. The Kliyakar himself engages in an answer that I don't think is close to Pshat. The Kliyakar wants to say that Yaakov Avinu is engaged in being um, a sycophant. And that fundamentally, that was the problem. We have a, we have a Gemara that tells us 
that anybody who gauges anybody who engages in sycophancy uh, in the end falls into the person who he was um, being so submissive to he ends up falling into that person's you know hands but the reality is of course Yaakov was a sycophant of course Yaakov says very 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 submissive things to Esau but that's all after he didn't say these things yet in other words, the Gemara says that that's true if Yaakov had engaged in Chanufa. But he hadn't yet engaged in Chanufa. That happens later, when Yaakov meets Esav. And he says to him, he says to the you know the servants that are going to go meet Esav, this is what you should tell your my master Esav. Right, this is what your your servant Jacob wants to tell you. We're sending you this stuff to 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 tell my master so we could find favor in your eyes. And again, you know, again and again, Yaakov Avinu says, again referring to himself as a servant and Esav as the master. Right, he wanted to try to find favor in his eyes, so he says, "Your servant Jacob, he bows down to him seven times." He bows down to Esav seven times, and again, each one of the children bowed down. Leah and her children, Rachel and Yosef, the Shvachas and their children, everyone's bowing down to to Esav. Um, and again, more Adaini, more 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 Eved. This is fundamentally how Yaakov is treating Esav, and all of that is a hundred percent true. He says the word Adaini, referring to Esav, again and again and again, and he refers to himself as an Eved, again and again. And this is the height of Chanufa. This is absolutely, you know, sycophancy for sure. Fine. So you could say that Gemara tells you. That whoever's machanif the safe nefel but this is not at the time when when he is being afraid. The kliyak wants to say that this is the reason that he's afraid because he engaged in chanufa. Great, but he didn't engage in chanufa yet. So the kliyak is very forced to suggest that the chanufa was by saying im lovan garti that that itself is the chanufa. But that seems relatively weak. Because he just is saying in the simple reading, "Im Lavan Garti," I've been living by my my father in Lavan, and that's why I've been delayed until now. That's not Chanufa, and certainly not in, as to what we're going to end up seeing. So as a result, we still don't understand why the Vayira, why Yaakov Avinu would be so scared. So here's the answer of the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra is dealing with a question, as we said, a question that's asked by many, many of the commentaries. And the Ibn Ezra is coming at it by saying that Yaakov Avinu is really not at fault for being scared. And he gives one of two possibilities, both of which avoid the problem of why Yaakov Avinu was scared when Hashem had made him a promise not 20 years ago, but two weeks ago. He gives two answers. The first answer, which he writes second, is that we know that Sadiqim 
are punished, Hashem has been doctored with them, kichot hasaira. Even the littlest infraction can result in a huge wallop. And you say, what's going on? How is that possibly fear? And the answer is, it's not. It's not fear to a normal person. But at this level, at this supernal level, if these people are operating, it's exactly just. Even though to us, on the outside, it looks like extremely unjust. Says the, says the Ibn Ezra. The riot to this is look at Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem told them go to Egypt. Right? They engaged in a whole back and forth protracted debate as to whether or not Moshe Rabbeinu should go to Mitzrayim. In the end, he's going down to Mitzrayim. And then Hashem reiterates he should go down to Mitzrayim. And he goes down. And on his way down, and for a very unclear reason, whatever that reason is, he obviously did something to, as it were, make a Kodesh Baruch Hu upset, whatever that means. And he comes to a hotel, he's on the way, he's going to this hotel, and this, uh, this angel is coming to kill him. How can you understand that? Says the Ibn Ezra, it's the same thing. Whatever infraction was that Moshe Rabbeinu committed, and there are different commentaries that have different approaches to what he did wrong, it does make a difference for, for, for the moment. But whatever it was, Moshe Rabbeinu had done something wrong. And Hashem was, as it were, you know, going to get rid of him. That is, even though there's no nothing obvious in the text about what was very wrong. Certainly nothing clear. Perhaps it was a lacking of the Bersmila, perhaps it wasn't traveling fast enough, whatever the reasons are that are given. And those are all beside the point. The point is, it was a minor infraction, and the Mashiach Shei Yisrael is now all of a sudden dispensable. In the same way, argues the Ibn Ezra, that's what's going on here. It's true that Hashem promised him 20 years ago that he would be with him. And it's true that two weeks ago Hashem reiterated that when he told him to go home. And it's true that he just heard like literally a week plus ago from Lavan that Hashem had said, don't mess around with my Yaakov. And it's true that he saw all these angels right here. But now it's a few days later. And he's scared because maybe he did some infraction the last couple of days of something seemingly minor. But at the level that he's at, it could have very serious consequences. The beauty of this answer is that it avoids the problem of saying that he was afraid because he had used up all of his merits. That he was afraid because it was a promise from 20 years ago. No, he fully acknowledges that Hashem has been promising him repeatedly. But just like Moshe Rabbeinu, where the, minor, the most minor of infractions, on the way to doing something important and, and, and significant, doesn't stop Hashem from trying to get rid of such a person, so too maybe that's what happened here by Yaakov himself. That's one approach of the Ibn Ezra. The other approach of the Ibn Ezra that he writes first, is like this. He says, when Hashem promised Yaakov Avinu that he's going to be with him, that he's going to return him to this land, that he said, I'm not going to abandon you until I do this for you. And Hashem says, Go back to your home, go back to your birthplace. I'm going to be with you. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that Hashem is going to be with him and protect him and his whole family? Says Ibn Ezra, I don't see that. When Hashem says, I'm going to protect you, it means Hashem says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect you, Yaakov Avinu. I'm not necessarily going to protect your family. In other words, the Ibn Ezra doesn't say this, but I'm adding this in. The same way that later on in Shemais, we're going to learn that Hashem says to Meishu Rabbeinu, you know, these Jewish people, they just served the Egel Azov. So Hashem says to Meishu Rabbeinu, I have enough. I'm done. Let me go. Hashem, as it were, says to Meshur Abenu, I'm going to get rid of the Jewish people and I'm going to make you into a great nation. Meaning that if Meshur Abenu would have accepted the offer, instead of saying Vayichal, if he would have accepted the offer, the actual Jewish people would be descended in the end of the day from Meshur Abenu. So it will go from Avitol Yaakov and all the Jewish people. But in the end, all the Jew- other families are gone. And only the line that goes from Yaakov to Levi, to, you know, to, to Kahas, to Amram, to Moshe, that's how the Jewish people would go. And that would be a fulfillment of the promise. Says the Ibn Ezra, where is the guarantee that Hashem is saying, oh, I'm going to ensure that your whole family makes it out in one piece. Maybe the whole family will be lost. The only Avtach is that Yaakov Avinu will remain, and then I'll have to make a new family. I'll have to try again. Like you know, the Gemara says, Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students. They were not Nagu Kavazebazeh. They wouldn't treat each other in a good fashion. So they all died right between Pesach. <coughs> right, They all died in the, uh, the Sviyas Oimer. And then Rabbi Kiva has to set up new students to have a continuity of all the Torah that he had from Rabbi Lezer Rabbi Shua, who themselves heard it from Rabbi Yechon and Zakkai, who himself heard it from Hillel, etc. If not for Rabbi Kiva having his five students, where would that Torah be in the from Yisrael? So he had five students to put it all down, what he once had to 24,000 students. He had to restart. Moshe Rabbeinu was given the opportunity to restart the Klai Yisrael from himself. So where's the guarantee, says the Ibn Ezra, that Hashem is saying that the whole family would survive? After all, what happened when Yosef and next week Sadra is going to be lost? It's going to be lost for a long period of time, many, many years. Yaakov Avinu is upset, but it doesn't view it as God, as it were, rejecting or retracting from his promise. Hashem never promised that, oh, you're going to have 12 sons and they're all going to be living and surviving and all be having children and that's how the Jewish people are going to work. And that's why Yaakov Avinu could lose this, this son, Yaisif, or at least in his mind, lose his son. And life must still go on. And then when he loses, the Ibn Ezra doesn't say this, but presumably then when he loses Shimon, he would say the same. And if he lost Binyamin, he would have to still say the same. There's no guarantee Hashem never told Yaakov, this is how many children you're going to have, this is how much wealth you're going to have, this is that. He just said, you're going to survive, I'm going to be with you. So according to this, then, that would explain why Yaakov was very scared. Because he was scared for the survival of his family, for which he had no guarantee from Hashem.
If that's true, then what some people say is that, in fact, Yaakov was wrong for being so scared. Let's say, for example, the Rashbam. The Rashbam says that Yaakov Avinu was wrong to be so scared. According to the Rashbam, Yaakov Avinu was punished for being so scared, and that's why he got hit in the thigh. The getting hit in the thigh is the repercussions for an unwarranted fear, despite Hashem having promised. And for the Rashbam, it's doubly wrong, because according to the Rashbam, Esav didn't want to kill, didn't want to hurt Yaakov as a matter of pshat. As a matter of pshat, Esav is coming with 400 men to honor him, to give him covet. The Ibn Ezra doesn't disagree. The Ibn Ezra says actually that Esav didn't want to harm Yaakov and his proof is that he cried. Why would he have cried? For the me- you have to go to a medrash that Yaakov's neck is turning really hard into Shayish in order to explain that Esav is breaking his teeth and that's why he's crying. But the simple reading is not. He cried. To me, the Ibn Ezra's proof is not a good proof. Why? Because it could be that he had nefarious intentions. It could be he didn't really want to be nice to Yaakov. And at that moment, he got overwhelmed with emotion. But the Ibn Ezra, like the Rashbam, both say that Esau didn't have nefarious intentions against Yaakov. He was coming to honor him. He was coming to be brotherly. That being said, according to the Ibn Ezra... So even though objectively he had no reason to fear, because Esav is really coming with the right, with the best of intentions, nevertheless, subjectively, Yaakov has a right to fear. Why? Because he doesn't know what Esav is doing. He's concerned. He's nervous. So he has a right to fear. Number one, that his family could be hurt because they're not promised from Hashem that they're going to survive. And number two. Because maybe he has committed some slight spiritual infraction <coughs> that a man at his supernal level will be punished for. That's effectively the approach of the Ibn Ezra. And like I said, they, the, the Rashbam fundamentally disagrees both with the Ibn Ezra and of course Rashi by saying that in fact Yaakov Avinu did sin. The fact is, Hashem had promised him that it will all be okay even if it's not, he's not specific about the family. Hashem had promised him that everything would be fine. And that's why he ends up getting hurt with the with the angel that gets hurt in the leg. That is um, the approach of the Rajbam. The Rajbam also gives an additional reason that maybe he had in fact committed a spiritual uh, infraction because he had not yet fulfilled his, his responsibility that he had taken on 20 years earlier. Because he had said that he would do things for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaShem had said, I'm going to take care of you. And he said, You're going to give me food and clothing and all that. You're going to be to me for a God. He said all of these various things that he's going to do. And now he's back. And he hadn't yet done anything. 
So that's what the Rashbam says. Maybe that was a spiritual infraction. Maybe the Ibn Ezra could agree that that would be the spiritual infraction because he hadn't yet had time to do it. Later on in the Sedra, we're going to see the, the commentaries don't point this out, at least not the, the classic commentaries. At the end of the day, Yaakovinu comes in. He has the whole Maisa with Esau. He has the Maisa with Dina, which according to some commentaries takes place after years of being there. And he still hasn't yet taken care of his oath that he had taken on, his net that he had taken on with Hashem. Hashem has to come to him and say to him that he should do it. And, uh, you know, towards the middle of the Sedra, where Hashem tells him, no, it's time to do this. Get rid of the Eliyahu, let's get rid of this, um, uh, and, and serve Hashem. That, to me, is the biggest question uh, in terms of how Yaakov Vinu could take so much time before he fulfilled that nether. Um, in any event, that is not something that Ibn Ezra discusses, so we will... We won't um, uh, argue for that as being uh, a situation of being matzah davis, because again, it's not something that the Ibn Ezra actually touches on. All right. The next fundamental question in this sadra, in terms of being matzah davis, that Ibn Ezra deals with, is in relation to Shimon and Levi killing out Shechem. We know that this is a fundamental disagreement between Yaakov and Shimon and Levi. We see that both in Pars Vayishlach and again in Pars Vayichi, that Yaakov Avinu was very upset. So here, the debate is between Yaakov and his sons. Was the action that they took in terms of getting rid of, decimating the city of Shrem appropriate or beyond the pale? This is not something that Hashem weighs in on. Shem's not saying anything over here. But Yaakov is saying something. Yaakov is saying that the action was wrong. So if you're being quote-unquote mastic to others, if you're being mastic Shimon and Levi for what they did, then you're effectively saying that Yaakovina was wrong. And if you say Yaakovina was right, then by definition you're saying that Shimon and Levi are wrong. This is the nub uh, or the crux of the issue over here. So according to the Ibn Ezra, the Ibn Ezra, you know, tries to, I think, sort of stay between the lanes here. And he says something very interesting. He says that the people of Shechem were not just guilty, um, as, let's say, the, the Rambam would put it. The Rambam puts, it's a very famous Rambam, the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah says that the people of Shechem were guilty and in fact, deserving of death. Why is that? Because of the fact that they didn't protest. Says the Rama that one of the Shev Mitzvahs B'nai Noach is that the, the inhabitants of a town have to set up court systems. They have to set up a system of adjudication to be able to take care of issues that pop up in the course of, you know, in the course of the day-to-day. Chayoven lahayshiv dayonen ushoiftim b'chol plach uplach lodem b'sheish mitzvah elu. In order to adhere to the seven mitzvahs b'nei noach, you have to have a court system. The court system is one of the seven mitzvahs b'nei noach. So you have to set up the court system that's going to do one of the seven mitzvahs b'nei noach in order to make sure, in order to ensure the adherence of the other six mitzvahs. So says the Rambam, what happened in this town? What happened in this town was that 
Shechem had done something horribly inappropriate. He had done something that was 100% an unadulterated wrong. And he wasn't punished. The people of Shechem didn't do anything. It's true, Shechem was a leader. right? His father, Hamar, was the leader of the town. But they didn't do anything to him. There were no consequences for his action. Therefore, all the people, the townspeople in Shechem, were Chayev Misa. Because Shechem, as it were, you know, was stole, meaning he acted inappropriately with Dina. And they saw what happened, and they didn't judge him, and they didn't, they didn't uh, stop him, they didn't give any consequences for the action. And Ben Noach gets punished, even with just one witness, even with one just just one um, judge, uh, even with Kravim as Adam, etc. So that's what the Rambam says. That's what he feels very strongly. The 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 people of Shechem were deserving of death. The Ibn Ezra is coming on a different tack. He's not saying that the people of Shechem deserve death. I mean, just to be clear, not all of the Rishonim agree that the people of Shechem deserve death. The the Ramban, very famously here in this Sadra, disagrees with the Rambam. The Ramban here in Paris Vayishlach says that the Rambam is wrong. He says, certainly, certainly the, the people of Shechem did not deserve death. They hadn't done anything wrong. They didn't, they didn't um, uh, do the deed that uh, Shechem had done, and they weren't required to uh, go and kill Shechem. That's incorrect. Um, for the Ramban, the, the issue that we find in the Sedra, if they're not wrong, if, if the, I'm sorry, if the people of Shechem are not deserving of death, then by definition, Shimon and Levi are wrong. And in fact, that the Rambam says, uh, the Ramban, I'm sorry, says, Shimon and Levi were 100% wrong. Why? Because we see that from Yaakov's reaction. Yaakov goes after them here in Paris Vayishlach. They don't accept his rebuke. Yaakov Avinu says to them, He says, you've, you've, you, you, you're going to make me now an object of hatred that all the nations around are going to gather around and they're going to try to kill me. And the brothers, uh, Shimon and Levi, respond by saying, They act inappropriately to our sister, treating her like a harlot. Yaakov says his peace and doesn't fight with them. But later on, uh, and his deathbed, he does. And most of the commentaries, in a sense, that's a reference to Mechers Yosef. It's a reference to the murder in Shechem. So for the Ramban, the Raya, that the Rambam is wrong, is from the text itself, from the reaction of Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu is saying... In other words, forget the halachic aspect of Shev Mitzvah B'nai Noyach, Dinim, what the... Yaakov Avinu is going after them. And he's going after them, you want to say, in Parash Vayishlach, just as a practical matter, because he's very scared, Yaakov, that maybe the, the, the neighbors are going to come in after his family. Okay. But at the end of his life, when living in the cocoon of Egypt, you know, living comfortably for the last 17 years, 
and having a good old time, seeing his family all together. At that stage of Yaakov Avinu's life, what's the necessity of going after Shimon and Levi again? The necessity is only because he felt strongly about it. So if Yaakov Avinu feels strongly about it, that means, by definition, that the brothers' actions were wrong. Shimon and Levi were wrong what they did. The people of Shem did not deserve to die. They, after all, um, are innocent. And that settles the matter, according to the Ramban. But what about the Ibn Ezra? So the Ibn Ezra here, as I said, seems to be threading the needle a little bit. On the one hand, he says something that I don't think is in accordance with the simple reading of the Pasuk, but he wants to make the following argument. Says the Ibn Ezra, the brothers had every right in effect, to kill Shechem and, like, the city. Why? Because the people of Shechem were plotting against the family of Yaakov. What's the raya to the Ibn Ezra that the people of Shechem were plotting against Yaakov? What's the raya? So he says, look at the Pasuk. The Pasuk says that the people of Sh- Shechem and Hamar told the people of Shechem, They want to have peace with us. They're good. They're good neighbors. They're Anshel Shlemenu. Okay. And they continue. They're going to live here in the land. We're going to take their daughters for wives. We're going to give them our daughters. In what way are they going to want to be one nation with us and they're going to become one of us? Only with a that They require circumcision the same way they're circumcised. And they continue. The, the, all the possessions, all the, the animals. Aren't all of their cattle? Doesn't it all belong to us? They're going to live with us. So what does that mean, says the Ibn Ezra? Doesn't all the cattle, doesn't all of the the animals, don't all the possessions, doesn't belong to us? What do you mean it belongs to you? It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. Says the Ibn Ezra, from here you see, They were thinking negatively. They were thinking evil thoughts, wicked thoughts about Yaakov and his family. That they said that aren't their possessions really ours. In other words, what you see from here, says the Ibn Ezra, in effect, is that they were plotting against Yaakov's family in order to be able to take all of their possessions. That is, they were trying to lull the Benayakov, they were trying to lull the Jewish people into a false sense of security and with a warm blanket of blandishments and circumcision that they're all going to be one people, but really they were eyeing all their possessions, they were going to rob them blind. If that's true, then it makes sense why Shimon and Levi have every right, presumably then, to go out and kill the townspeople of Shechem. The problem is that the simple reading of the Pusik doesn't 
doesn't justify this reading. The simple reading of the Pasuk is that the brothers told them that they have to have a bris. They can't give their sister to somebody who doesn't have a bris. Bris Mila is something very important to the family, the descendants of Abraham. God made his covenantal you know, treaty with the Jewish people on, on, on bris. We can't, we can't have our daughters marrying someone who doesn't have uh, a bris mila. Okay. They're now trying to convince the townspeople to take on what is undoubtedly a very painful procedure for no apparent reason other than the whims and the desires and the passions of a young man named Shem. And the townspeople will be like, well, why am I doing that? Like, there's no benefit for me here. There's only a benefit to the chieftain's kid, not to me. So Shem is trying to woo them into a uh, into being willing to do a bris milah. And the way he does it, he says, look, we're all going to become one. It's not just, this is not just about me. This is not just for my benefit. If we're going to do this, we're all going to be able to marry their daughters. Not just me. And with that sense of, of uh, that attempt to woo them, this is how he convinces them to do it. So he says, if we're going to do the brismila, then you're going to marry their daughters and we're going to give them our daughters and we're all going to become one nation. And all of their possessions will be like ours. What do you mean ours? Not we're taking it from them because we're stealing it from them. Remember that there's two ways, two enemies of the Jewish people, right? There's the, when the, when um, the Balatanya was asked who he preferred to win in the war, Napoleon or the Tsar, he said Napoleon, because, I'm sorry, he said the Tsar, not Napoleon, why? Because when the Tsar wins, we know exactly who our enemy is. When Napoleon wins, we don't know if he's our enemy or our friend. What the, what the goal of Shrem and Hamor in saying these blandishments to the townspeople is not literally we're going to take away their their mcname vikinyonam halaylonam. We're not going to go there and like hold them up by gunpoint and take away all their stuff. That's never what they're saying. What they're saying is our Enoch are going to be yarshining from them. We're going to end up getting all of this because we're going to become one people. That's the simple reading of the Pasuk. Nevertheless, it seems to me that the Ibn Ezra is trying, in a sense, to be Mastic Davis, to be Mastic Shimon and Levi, and attempting to find a way to ground their actions in some basis, to give them some, some semblance of, of right as to explain how they could possibly do what they did in terms of decimating the town. And I think he's doing that by saying that, look, they were under threat because the people of Shechem were going to try to come and steal from them and take away all their stuff. Which, again, I don't think is a simple reading of the Pasa. But as I said, the Ibn Ezra is confronted by the fact that Yaakov Avinu is not very happy with the actions of Shimon and Levi. So if there's a debate between Yaakov Avinu and Shimon and Levi as to who is more correct, then who is he going to go with? Well, clearly... He has to go with Yaakov Avinu. Like the Ramban. I would imagine that that's what he would do. 
But unlike the Ramban, who as a result of going with Yaakov Vinu says Shimon and Levi are 100% unadulterated, wrong for what they did, Ibn Ezra doesn't do that. Ibn Ezra tries to be mastic Shimon and Levi here. And later on in Parshish Vayichi, the Ibn Ezra explains Yaakov Vinu's action. In Parshish Vayichi, the first three brachas are not very much brachas. And the way he says to Shimon and Levi, he says, The Ibn Ezra explains, what does it mean that their weapons right, are deceitful? What is it referring to? Says the Ibn Ezra, The, the reason for this chomas, this deceit, this, this stealing that they did, was, that after the people of Shechem had entered into a covenant with them, had entered into a deal. They made a deal. The deal was, if you're going to do a bris, we're going to all be together, we're going to, you know, we're going to intermarry, we're going to have a good old time. That was the deal. And they reneged on the deal. Bimirma, which remember, we already explained, that even though Rashi says, and Unkula says, that Bimirma means Bachachmasa, that means with wisdom, that's not how the Ibn Ezra understands it. The Ibn Ezra understands the Mirma is literally Mirma. It's really trickery. Now, the Ibn Ezra sometimes says that trickery is permitted. If you recall back in Parshas Taldais, the Ibn Ezra said, when Yaakov came along to steal the brachas, and he's fooling Yitzchak as to his identity, so... On the word Mirma there, because Yitzchak tells Esav, Ba'achicha b'mirma v'ikach b'chaisecha. So Rashi explained that he, that Yitzchak is telling Esav that Yitzchak came, I'm sorry, that Yaakov came with wisdom to take the brachas. That's not what the Ibn Ezra said. The Ibn Ezra says, Ba'achicha b'mirma v'ikach b'chaisecha. He came along with Ramaz, he came along with deceit. But if you recall, we explained that the Ibn Ezra says, that sometimes deceit is necessary. In order for certain prophets to be able to realize their vision, they have to engage in deceitful action, deceitful activity. And that's what happened. So, the Ibn Ezra holds that Mirma literally means Mirma. It means deceit. And that's what happened over here. The brothers had entered into a covenant, and they didn't honor the deal that they had entered into. These people had done their side of the deal. They had mouthed themselves. And nevertheless, the brothers did not act appropriately in reneging on their deal. But is the Ibn Ezra saying that that's his opinion? Or is this the opinion of Yaakov Avinu? In this, we're left a little bit without any guidance as to Ibn Ezra's true opinion. Because why was it necessary to go away from the simple pshat? And try to explain the actions of the brothers by saying that the people of Shechem were really Ramoim and trying to steal from them. That's not the simple reading of the Pasuk. The Ibn Ezra there seems to be going out of his way to try to be Mastic Shimon and Levi. And yet, at the end of Bereshus, in explaining Yaakov Avinu and what he was angry about, he's very clear that the brothers, they reneged on what the deal was. That's the Mirma, that's the Chamas that they were acting with. So it's not 100% clear to me as to what the Ibn Ezra's true feeling is. 
Is he more with the side of Yaakov Avinu? Or is he more on the side of the brothers? The last example, as I said, there is another example in the Sedra where you have comments from the Ibn Ezra, and that's in relation to the Elihei Necher, the idol idolatry that, that they had to get rid of. Where the Ibn Ezra says, Khalila, Khalila, this cannot have been in the house. There's no way. He, that's an obvious example of being Mastic to others. But the last fundamental example that we see in this week's parsha is in relation to the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Vayelech Ruvain, Vayishgav, Azbilopi, Lagashavev. Ruvain goes along, and the simple reading of the Pasuk would be that he seems to have acted inappropriately with Bila. And if you look at the Radak as an example, the Radak says that's exactly what happened. The Radak tries to explain Ruvain's actions by saying that he thought it was permitted. It wasn't really considered his father's wife. And it was just a, like a servant. And so he thought it was um, permitted. Sheruvein chashav kilehaisa sura love. That it wasn't really, she wasn't really asher to him. Vishayaisa tchila shivcha. Because she was really a, a shivcha. And her father never really married her. He was, she was a pelagashi. And the Torah says that the Torah refers to, um, the Torah refers to her as a wife. Because the positive atitin la asbila shivcha sa loyal isha. But for the radak, that's the simple explanation of what happened. literally means that they engaged in intimate activity. For the Ibn Ezra, it's a very cute one-liner. The Ibn Ezra says like this. And by the way, maybe before we, we, we uh, go to what Chazal said in the Ibn Ezra's line, we have, right before, in the Sedra, in the Mice of Dina. And over there we see that the Pazik says that No one doubts what that means. So what's the difference between If you look later on, however, in Paris Vayichi, it doesn't seem to mention that exactly. What does the Pazik say? The Pazik there says that Yaakov is going after Reuven. And he says, Reuven, Mechari, Atta, Kirchi, Rejizoni. Yes, it's the Ace, Vies, or Oz, Pachas, Kamayim, Altoisa, you're like rushing water. Kiolisa, Mishkeve, Avicha. You went up on the bed of your father. Oz, Chilalta. And then you were Mechalal. You desecrated. Yitzui, Allah. You went up on my bed. Doesn't exactly sound, certainly not as blatant. As we are seeing, in, as we are seeing in the pasuk here in um, here in in Vayishlach. So we have a gemara. The gemara says. The gemara says in Shabbos that uh, a series of, of of saying statements about imagining that various of the avos had done sins, that you can't say that, you can't think that that's wrong. They did not. So one of the examples is, anybody who says that Reuven sinned, in terms of actually engaging in intimate relations with Bila, is wrong. Why? Because the Pasuk itself proves it. Right after it says, Ve'ishkav, uh, the Pasuk says, There is a space but right after, the the next words that you read is that the sons of Jacob were 12. 
So the proof is, if the sons of Jacob were 12, then obviously, how could you say, as a matter of Parshat Pshat, that Reuben had committed such an activity, and that he would still be welcome in the family? How would he still be? How would the sons of Jacob still be twelve? How could they be united? How could Jacob allow him to be setting, you know, forth uh, on, on his threshold, if that is truly what had happened? Again, as we see in Parshas in Yaakov's own words, not going to Divrei Yamim, just a simple reading of what Yaakov says. He's not doesn't seem to be going after in that sort of a graphic way that the pasuk is referring to over here. So the Gemara says. That teaches you that shkulam, shkulam ka'achas—they're all like one. They're all—they were all good. Um, they were all on the right level. They were all very spiritual, holy people. So then, how do you do? The Gemara says, "Okay, but I know that the pasuk is very blunt." Sounds pretty clear and blatant as to what happened. So the Gemara says that teaches you So he acted inappropriately with the beds. He moved them around. After Rachel's death, um, and that is what the pasuk was referring to. But again, like any other tzaddik, as we start out the classes today, where Hashem takes his medakim the tzaddikim he takes the smallest of actions and enlarges it. The same way he did by Meishu Rabbeinu and hitting the rock. Hashem does this, as it were. This is his want for those that are the closest. They also get the most biggest punishments on the smallest seeming infractions. And that's what happened here for Reuven. The Torah is malav on him, terrible, terrible what it says, even though in reality that's not actually what happened as a matter of shot. And because we're afraid that people misunderstand, the Mishnah Megillah tells us that the Maeser of Reuven is nikra v'alem mitagim. The Maeser of Reuven is only read, but it's not, it's not translated in Shul. Rashi here says, that's in fact correct. As a, mat- as a matter of shot, Rashi accepts the Gemara. That it's not true that Reuven literally engaged in intimate activity with Bilah. Rather, what does it mean? It means he sort of messed around with the beds, he moved things around. And that's what's considered um, being Shachab. And, and the reason Rashi explains the backstory was because when Rachel died, he expected. That the bed should be moved. Jacob's bed should be moved from Rachel to Billa. I'm sorry, from Rachel to Leah, not to Billa. Billa was a slap in the face to his mom, to Leah, because of the fact that Leah was the main, well, should have become the, now the main wife upon Rachel's demise, and it didn't happen. Instead, Yaakov moves his bed to to Billa, which was her her shivcha, but certainly shouldn't be the replacement. And this is what got Reuven very upset. Certainly would seem to be in consonance with, Ru- with Reuven that we see that is very quick to action, not necessarily um, considering all the consequences as we see later on in relation to how he deals with trying to save Yosef without care or concern for his own well-being, how he attempts to convince um the brothers of their wrongdoing in front of Yosef and blaming all of them for having sold them in full public view. How he deals with trying to convince Jacob to send down uh, Benjamin. Reuven just doesn't always seem to think things through in the most considered fashion. And that 
would be no different here. But the Torah gives it a sharper sounding designation because of the fact that Reuven is, at the end of the day, one of the 12 tribes. He's a super spiritual giant. And so we give him, we give him, we give, we, we connote what he did wrong worse than it actually was. What does the Ibn Ezra say? Ibn Ezra has one word, one line. Says the Ibn Ezra, Vayelech Ruvain, what does it mean? Yafa Perushoi Rabbi Senuzal. What the rabbis explained was very nice. Vechisa Kaloin Arum. It's good to hide the, the, you know, the sort of the, the shame of the naked. Which is a delicious way of finishing off. Because what is he actually saying? The rabbis, they explained it really nice. What did the rabbis say? Reuven didn't really sin. The Torah is just, uh, you know, maximizing because of how great he was. The Torah is maximizing what he actually did. He really didn't do anything that bad. And the proof is that the 12 tribes remained 12 and that he was still welcome at home. Okay. But then you finish it off quoting a Pasuk that... It's good to hide the sins of the naked. It's good to hide the shame of the naked. Well, what does that mean? Why are you connecting that to what you just said? You should have just said, Yafa Perusha Rabbi Senazal. The rabbis, they explained it beautifully. And that's it. You'll be done. We know what you think. You think like Rashi, and we're all finished. We're good to go. But no. He's adding on and saying that the rabbis... Yafet Perusha Rabbi Senazal. The rabbis, they explained it really nice. And sort of covering up what, what he had done. Because that's what we do. Because that's what we do for the, for, the, for the naked. We try to hide their shame. In other words, that's what the rabbis were engaged in. Which then sounds like what the Ibn Ezra is really saying. Is that the reason the rabbis perish is really good. Is because it hides the shame of the naked. Which means that Reuben really did sin. Like the Radak. That's what it would seem to be indicating by his bringing down of this Pasek, but he's definitely not explicit about it. So this concludes our second class on the Ibn Ezra being Matzdik, the Avais, and we see his approach is very often to try to find to try to find a way to explain the approach of the Avais, even if it's not necessarily so obvious in the Pesukim, like for example, Shimon and Levi, um, and you know, trying to explain Yaakov Avinu and his reason to be fearful, and here um, would be a contrary example. Here, it would seem to be indicating that he does think that, like the Radak, that Reuben actually did sin, but he's quite happy not to make that so clear, make that ambiguous, and perhaps that is a telling and a fitting way to conclude as to what the Ibn Ezra's approach is, how you deal with the with what seems to be the infractions of the Avais. You hide it. You don't have to be so deliberate about it. And certainly if, the way, if you can't be matzlik them, it all goes to the way of being mechasa, the clone of the Aram. Have a good Shabbos.